Hey everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner and you're listening to Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, the podcast. It's spring, it's March, and it's gray, dark, and rainy-ish here in Portland, Oregon, but there are flowers and birds busting out all over and that makes everything okay. So, what's going on in the world of pregnancy, parenting, and politics? Well, lots, as always. Middle of March, as I mentioned, March is Women's History Month, and this week, a real pioneer in the birth industry passed away. Marie Mongan is definitely an important woman for us to remember. She developed hypnobirthing, or the Mongan method of natural childbirth, and she died this week at age 86. What a life. She was one of the most respected pioneers in the natural childbirth movement, and hypnobirthing remains one of the most effective ways I've seen in, you know, a couple decades of being with women having babies, um, of achieving an unmedicated low-intervention birth. Her techniques were born out of, uh, you know, trauma and a demand for better treatment during her own births. During her first two births in the 1950s, Marie Mongan tells the story that she was restrained and uh, given ether as anesthesia against her will. That was, you know, she told them she didn't want to be anesthetized and they did not give her a choice. Strapped her down and gave her ether, put her out. That was really common in hospitals back then, whether women wanted that or not. It made births a lot quieter and easier on the staff, even though it knocked women out of their own birth experiences. You'd wake up and they'd hand you your baby. Mongan demanded that her right to an unmedicated birth be honored for her third and fourth babies. And she did her own research and she taught herself deep relaxation techniques that helped her have really positive birth experiences with those two babies. Her research and her work in this area really influenced the birth industry and culture here in the United States and around the world by teaching women that birth doesn't have to be something to fear, but something to experience in a state of deep relaxation. So I mentioned I was the labor nurse in dozens and dozens and dozens of hypnobirths, and they were really lovely experiences. I didn't use hypnobirthing with my own births, though, because at the time, Lamaze was more in vogue then, and I'm not really sure I ever reached the state of being that I'd call relaxed with my Lamaze labors. I know a lot of women do, but that wasn't what happened for me. I imagine, though, that the relaxed hypnotic state many women achieve with hypnobirthing is somewhat similar to meditation, where you shift your thoughts inward, tap into deep resources, and ride the waves of your experience. I'm familiar with meditation, swear by it, recommend it to everybody. I just think it's amazing what the brain can do when given the opportunity. Okay, what else? Let's see. Up on Capitol Hill, the 2021 Violence Against Women Act passed the House with a vote of 244 in favor of reauthorizing it and 172 against. What does this bill do? Well, it's a bill that's been around for a while, and it protects and provides resources for victims of domestic abuse and sexual violence. It was led by Joe Biden back in 1994, and it has been reauthorized several times since, most recently in 2013. 
but it lapsed in 2018 when a Republican-controlled Senate refused to put it up for a vote. What's their problem? Well, it came down to partisan disputes about guns and transgender issues. The current provision in the Violence Against Women Act bars an individual from buying a gun if they have even misdemeanor convictions of domestic abuse or stalking. What happens now that it has passed the House? Well, it goes over to the Senate side, and they get to vote. If it passes there, then it will be reauthorized as law by the president. Since the Senate is evenly divided right now, 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans, and Democrats are strongly in favor of the Violence Against Women Act, I think this bill will probably pass the Senate, maybe perhaps with a stronger Republican support than we expect. I'm hoping anyway, especially in a week when we're focused on women's lives and deaths and murders in the United States and abroad, and specifically the deaths of Sarah Everard and the women killed in Atlanta this week. There's just no excuse not to pass this bill. What else is in the news? Well, I've seen a couple articles uh, this month in news sources that include the New York Times and U.S. News about the uptick we're seeing in home births lately. It's not a lot. There's still, you know, there's 4 million babies that are born in the United States every year, and a small percentage of those are home births. We're seeing this uptake, though, partly due to the pandemic, where people might not have, they might not want to be exposed to the virus at the hospital, um, and due to the fact that some hospitals are limiting visitors and doulas and labor support people. In addition, a couple of these articles are about black women and families who are choosing to give birth at home because they know maternal health outcomes are much worse for black women in the United States than for white women, with approximately two to five times as many women dying from pregnancy-related conditions. These articles are giving us opportunities to talk once again about the big subject of whether or not home birth is safe. And I'm grateful that many resources are answering that question with a qualified yes. Home birth for the right women with the right health care providers and support people and a solid emergency backup plan can absolutely be a safe choice for women and their babies. But what about those emergencies? Don't they happen super fast, super scary, and aren't they super common? No, not usually. Sometimes yes, but mostly no. When emergencies happen, there are usually signs and usually enough time to get the help you need. That's why it's essential to have skilled providers who know how to do home births, how to assess for problems, how to facilitate normal processes, and the wisdom to know when it's time to go to the hospital. That's what midwives do. Now, the U.S. News article titled, Pandemic Propels Interest in Out-of-Hospital Births. It was written by Kaya Hubbard and was published on March 4th, and it included some super interesting stats. According to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, approximately 35,000 births per year in the United States typically occur at home. Research also shows that the share of births in the U.S. that occurred at home increased by nearly 80% from 2004 to 2017, and that the vast majority of the more than 38,000 home births in 2017, including those transferred to a hospital and those not reported by California, they were planned. 
so I'm going to be super interested to see if this uptick continues and if it begins to correlate with improved outcomes. Whatever happens, it's sure time to have a different conversation about home birth, one that acknowledges its value for many, many women who are good candidates with good midwives and good backup plans. And we're going to, you know, we're going to talk more about this as we go forward because, you know, there are still a lot of people out there who think that it's a super dangerous choice for any woman to make, and that's just not so. Okay, we're going to talk to a midwife today who is focused on women's wellness for the year leading up to pregnancy and throughout her perinatal and postpartum experiences. She is particularly focused on the postpartum year. So let's take a fast break and we'll get right back to chatting. All right, we're back and ready to talk with this week's guest. Tanya Tringali is the founder of Motherwit Maternity Services. She is a certified nurse midwife with 20 years experience in maternal infant health. She began her career in the birth world as a doula when she was 20 years old and six weeks postpartum. She became a registered nurse and then a certified nurse midwife. She was on the faculty at Philadelphia University and is currently adjunct faculty at New York University and Georgetown University. She has cared for thousands of women over the years, mostly in and around New York City, and has caught nearly 1,200 babies. Let's get Tanya on the line. Hi, Tanya. It's Jeannie. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. It's good to get you on the phone. Thanks so much. What part of the country are you in? Uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. <gasps> I've never been there. I want to so bad. Are you, <laughs> are you facing snow this week? It has been very cold. <laughs> Here too. Here too. Yeah. yeah. Crazy, right. crazy times in the south of this country. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we expect snow and ice storms up here in Oregon, but um, yeah, not so much in your part of the world, huh? Yep. <laughs> well, Tanya, the first big hard question is, who are you and what do you do? Hmm. Well, I'm Tanya. Um, I am a certified nurse midwife. I, uh, so I had a baby when I was about 20 years old. And while I was pregnant very early in pregnancy, I sort of figured out that something wasn't right about my obstetrical care. Uh, but I had no idea what to do about it. I didn't even know midwives existed at that moment. Um, thankfully, a group of women in a yoga class were talking about their midwife and I, my ears perked up. And there starts my journey. So while I was quite young and pregnant, I read every book I could get my hands on. And by the time I was six weeks postpartum, I was a doula and at my first birth at six weeks postpartum. And after a few births, I was in nursing school. And right after nursing school, I knew I wanted to go to midwifery school. But I had a little one and needed a break. So I worked as a labor and delivery nurse for a couple of years and then finally started midwifery school. Uh, when she went to kindergarten. So I finished midwifery school when she finished the first grade. Um, and I worked as a midwife in and around New York City um, for all those years until right around the time my daughter finished high school. I moved away when she went to college. Um, and so I worked, 
you know, in all sorts of midwifery practices over the years. And I worked in some really fantastic ones. And I worked in some that were also fantastic, but were just so busy that I couldn't provide the kind of care that I wanted to provide. And every day that just burned me out a little bit more than the day before. So as my daughter was approaching the end of high school, I knew I wanted to do something really different. Um, and I decided to start a company doing a lot of virtual health and focusing on fitness as well, because over the years I became a personal trainer, got into CrossFit, got my CrossFit level one. And then magically I found uh, a course called pregnancy and postpartum athleticism uh, certification to focus on that. So I found myself um, working with people around the perinatal period. So whether they were planning a pregnancy, were pregnant or postpartum, figuring out where they were in their journey and kind of optimizing their wellness. But even within that, I found that sometimes someone would come in for a session and we'd be sitting on the floor and now we're working on breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, the idea that started as a kernel that it wasn't fully fleshed out over the past few years has become fairly well fleshed out. And now what I spend most of my time doing is extremely comprehensive, high touch, individualized postpartum care. So I still do all the other things. I'll support people through their conception journey, through pregnancy, and of course, through postpartum. Um, but it's taken on a life of its own, especially since COVID. It yeah. looks really different these days. And boy, have I embraced virtual care. Um, Are you working in the delivery room at all? I'm not. Since I left New York, I, I don't work in Louisiana. Um, I still do have privileges up at one of my favorite hospitals in New, in New York, up in Westchester. Um, and I do go up there once or twice a year, although during COVID, that's obviously been complicated. So it has officially been a year since I caught a baby. Uh, but normally I go up there once or twice a year and keep my skills fresh. So I'm hoping that things keep moving in the right direction so I can get back there because I am definitely itching to do that. Although I am also very happy sleeping at night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. Later on. Yeah. So yeah. Um, when you were a labor and delivery nurse, were you night shift? I was always night shift. And as much as... Yeah lack of sleep was not good for me. The culture of night shift was always my favorite place to be um, mm -hmm. because I just, I'm such a midwife <laughs> and all those scheduled mm -hmm. procedures mm -hmm. just really were hard for me. Um, yeah. So the lack of sleep was better, but certainly, you know, nearly 20 years of that took its toll. I mean, the people I know who are, you know, much older than me who are still doing it, I'm just kind of like, what's wrong with me? Why couldn't I keep that up? But it was, it was hard for me. Yeah, I had a hard time with it too. Yeah. So when you were doing midwifery in New York, were you working in Manhattan? Um, I worked in Brooklyn a lot. So I was in, I, I actually have worked in Westchester County, Rockland County, which are the two counties just north of the city and Bro Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And I did some of my training in Connecticut, but I actually didn't work there. Um, after I was licensed and up and running. So I've kind of been all over the place. But no, I don't think I, I was a labor and wait, I was a liver. I'm lying. I was a labor and delivery nurse in Manhattan at NYU Medical Center. Um, but then once I was a midwife, not in Manhattan. Yeah, a lot of midwives, um, they don't really want to practice in Manhattan because they can't get any actual delivery room work. You know, they do prenatal care, they do postpartum care. 
in OBGYN offices, but very few actually get to be in the delivery room. You know, once their patients go to the hospital, then they get transferred to OB care. Yeah, there are a few hospitals in the city in Manhattan that have midwifery services, but not that many. I think the other boroughs do have more of them for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit more about your business. It's called Mother Wit Maternity. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, again, I started out initially working very focused on fitness, but that was mainly because I was new at running a business, right? Nobody teaches you how to run a business in nursing school or midwifery school or medical school or anywhere, or anywhere, right? Exactly. And so I am over three years into this journey and I feel like I'm just starting to get it. (laughs) So it was the steep learning curve that kept me heavily focused on the thing that was new and most interesting to me at the time. But, you know, I'm, I I always have my hands in a lot of things at the same time. Like even now I teach midwifery at NYU and I'm, I'm, uh, I work at Georgetown in a capacity that's not quite teaching. I'm like an advisor uh, for midwifery students at Georgetown. And I love having lots of things going on. So I think maybe I get bored too easily. I'm not really sure. (laughs) I'm still working that all out. You're multi-passionate. Oh, totally. Yeah, you've got a lot going on. Yeah. So, I mean, I I feel like I'm still figuring it out, but certainly the pandemic has helped me land on the greatest need. And when I recognized that I was not just filling a small little gap, I was filling a massive void, the void that is postpartum care. I felt like I finally landed on what people need and what they're not getting any other way. And suddenly it became even more clear that so much of the needs in the postpartum period don't require me to have to touch someone or them to come to my office or any of that. You know, when we think about the six week visit in isolation, nothing could be farther from the truth in terms of, of, of what, what it entails and what it actually manages to cover right? Because Mm -hmm. the needs on day one, the needs week two, what about 12 weeks postpartum, right? Like all those moments in between, people are unsure how to navigate that journey. And they're getting so much information from so many different places, be it their mothers, their friends, their family, really well-intentioned people in their lives. And then there's Dr. Google. And then there's sort of the misinformation that can sometimes even come from our own healthcare system. So just to bring it back to fitness, for example, that's not something that we as nurses, midwives, or doctors really have any training about. And yet people look to us as experts and we're clearing people supposedly for things like sex and fitness, but without any further guidance on what that actually looks like. And the guidance from one person to another can be so drastically different that people don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. So I so think. What do you teach them? What, how do you operate? What do you? How does it work? Yeah. So it's it's super individualized, right? So the answer is going to be really different for someone who maybe has never actually exercised, and maybe having a baby and being a mother is renewing 
their spirit in the way they feel. And they finally say, you know what, I need to get active. I have to do this for me. I have to do this for my family. So that return to fitness or entry into fitness is going to look really different than somebody who is perhaps an elite athlete, right? So I think one of the things that really bothers me is when we as healthcare providers, and I've said it a million times, and I think we all do at some point or another, we say, oh, just listen to your body, Mm -hmm. right? Well, listen to your body is really different for different people. So if you're an athlete, you probably, I would argue, don't listen to your body because you know how to push through pain. That's how you got so good, Mm -hmm. right? But maybe pregnancy is not the time to push that hard. And maybe your body deserves more time to recover in the postpartum period. And it needs to be more gentle than that. Right. And a lot of times what your body is telling you in the postpartum period is um, I'm exhausted, sit on the couch and do nothing. Exactly. So even with that's an erroneous message too. Totally. Even with my clients who are super knowledgeable, because a lot of the people who find this service are, they're really in the know. They know that there's a problem with the postpartum care in this country and they're looking for a solution to make it better for themselves. But they'll come to me and, you know, one week postpartum, they're wanting already to do a little bit of, you know, work on their core, work on their pelvic floor. And I have to really take each of them as an individual and give them very personalized advice, depending on what their background is and how they use exercise in their life, right? Do they have a healthy relationship to exercise? Do they need exercise for their mental health? Um, And so there isn't just a one size fits all answer. And that's unfortunately what happens at the six week visit. Everyone, unless there's a real problem, everyone gets the memo that they're cleared for sex and exercise. I always put those two things together because they they are. They're very related. Um, and then they go out in the world and many women go put on their running shoes and they think they can go run a mile and they get started and then they go, whoa, what just happened? What did I feel? What was that? And then they're scared because they were told they were fine. So what does this really mean? Right. So talking people through what is it you want to do? What are your short term and your long term goals and how can we get you there safely? And what does listening to your body really mean? Right. So talking to them about pressure, pain, leaking, all the things like these are the things you want to be aware of. But these things are conversations that need to happen over time when the person's ready for them. So that might be the case that somebody at four weeks wants to have this conversation. But someone who had a more complicated birth might not be ready to have this conversation until 12 weeks postpartum. So it's really about meeting people where they are. Not, um, I, we haven't had a lot of conversations here on the podcast about, um, postpartum sex Mm. and you're right. Six weeks, you know, you, you go in and you get your vaginal exam and they take a little look down there and they say, yep, you're healed up, go for it. And then you realize that things may be a little different or maybe you don't want to, you know? So, so let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So for me, this is a conversation that usually starts around four weeks postpartum and then doesn't end until somebody has gone through whatever it is that they need to go through. So I start by talking to people about how they're feeling and how they think they might want to approach this. So we start talking about intimacy in a really broad way and redefining sex so that it doesn't have to be just one thing. Um, a, a pattern that I've seen that is 
fascinating to me that I think needs even more thought than I've had the time to put into it is that there seems to be a relationship between the way a postpartum full-fledged woman thinks about that first sexual experience and the way many teenagers think about their first sexual experience. And so you'll hear teenagers say things like, I just want to get it over with. I hear that a lot from young Mm -hmm. people. And you know what? Right after postpartum, when you get cleared, people feel the same way. I just want to get it over with. And when I say that out loud to most people, they kind of smirk or giggle for a moment because they recognize that voice in themselves. So then I pull them back from there and I say, okay, let's look at the big picture. Let's revisit this as you two have to get to know this new body. Mm -hmm. Your partner's nervous. You're nervous. You don't know what you like anymore. You don't know if it's going to hurt. And then we roll out all the approaches, whether we're talking about lubrication, foreplay, relaxing your pelvic floor. And by the way, all the steps that come before this include assessing your own pelvic floor, feeling around for scar tissue. Is there any tenderness? Because A, A, if you can get through your six-week exam with no discomfort and you can self-assess with no discomfort, well, that builds your confidence that when you go down the road of intimacy, should it lead to sex, you're probably going to do okay. So then my clients who have been very open with, which is the vast majority of them, they usually debrief with me about how it went so that we can troubleshoot. Was there pain? Was it on insertion? Was it a deep pain upon thrusting, right? So we're really breaking it down and figuring out what the issues are. And then I get people to a pelvic floor PT if that's what they need as well. And so sometimes I know somebody needs a pelvic floor PT well before they engage in sex and exercise. And sometimes I don't. Um, But I encourage the vast majority of people to see someone anyway. So that's always being talked about. But basically all this stuff is touched on when somebody works with me in, in the long term while they're pregnant, right? Like some of postpartum involves planning and knowing what's available to you and then kind of putting it aside and knowing that I'm going to help you through all of that step by step when it's the right time for you. I think that we should model our postpartum care um, much more similarly to the way it is modeled in um, many European countries. And most of all, the thing I love the most are the countries where postpartum women are visited in their homes by a visiting nurse, midwife, or doula for the first couple of weeks or months Yeah, and after they have their baby. And we sure don't do that here. We, we, send, we send women home with their newborn babies and their partner or their husband and maybe their mother-in-law, maybe their mother, maybe their sister, and we say, good luck, bye-bye. And those first two weeks can be brutal. Yeah. You know, you're, you have a completely different relationship with your body. You have this little person who you have to keep alive and learn how to breastfeed or bottle feed. You have no sleep, you know, an entirely different identity. Everything is different. And those first couple of weeks can be brutal. Absolutely. And so that's really what, what I'm doing with people is so, so I think I, I don't think I've said this yet in our conversation, but in addition to these sessions that I have with people every couple of weeks, as long as they want to keep going, um, my clients message me every single day, be it a text message, a Google doc that's shared between the two of us that we're housing resources in, Marco Polo, you name it. So we're in constant touch so that the second something's off, I know. So those first two weeks are really intense. I'm in touch with people many times a day 
for the first couple of weeks. And when they finally have a handle on things, I start backing off and I put the contact in their hands. Um, and so, yeah, we are focusing on their physical comfort, making sure that they're not having any serious signs and symptoms of postpartum complications and really getting a handle on breastfeeding. So it's like, where are you at? Are you engorged? Do you need tips on dealing with the engorgement? Are your nipples intact? Do we need to manage that? What positions are you nursing in? How can we optimize that? So it just kind of goes on and on and on and the level of nuance that's there. I don't understand how I did it without all this. And I don't know how everybody else does it, but it's just, we can do it. We're humans, we're resilient, but maybe it shouldn't be this way. <laughs> maybe it doesn't have to be so hard. And maybe we don't just have to go at it, you know, white knuckling it all by ourselves. Yeah. Maybe we could have support. So are the services that you provide in addition to what they're getting through their traditional healthcare provider? Yes, absolutely. Or, okay. Yeah. Okay. It's in addition. So they're mm -hmm. contracting with you separately. Totally. Completely separate. At this time, there's no, you know, I don't take insurance or anything like that. I, I be feeling like a real pessimist here, but I, I'm doubtful that that would ever, this would ever get covered. I mean, I look forward to a day where, as you said, someone gets two visits in their home. So I'm not sure that our system will ever agree to this degree of support. Um, but I do think that this is what people need and deserve is access to someone every day. And I think that even well-meaning practitioners will say to their clients, reach out to me if you have any questions. But, but you know how many questions you come up with in one day when you're postpartum and you're not going to call your provider with those. So no. you, can, you can mean well and say that, but no one's going to do it. And if they all did, you would need a switchboard operator of midwives. Right. <laughs> right. So it's just not practical. Um, mm -hmm. and, and also, we aren't well trained, even as midwives, for this level of one-on-one -on -one kind of high-touch hand-holding that goes on and on. I, our hearts are in it. But the answers to these questions, I've done years of work to be able to answer a lot of these questions. I've faced a lot of truths about what I didn't know in order to answer the kinds of questions that I get every single day. And I thank my amazing referral network who I pick their brain every day because I work very closely with lactation consultants, mental health people, a physical therapist, sleep coaches, and I have them all very close to me when I have questions or when my client needs them more than they need me. Mm -hmm. Right. So do you have to stay up all night now? No. So the one thing that I do do with my clients uh, is say, I do need to sleep at night because I have a number of you and I would never sleep ever. <laughs> If everybody, uh, if I texted with everybody in the middle of the night, but I am, I welcome middle of the night texts because I think that's when people are thinking sometimes they're clearest while they're up alone in the middle of the night, having a quiet nursing session. So I have no problem with waking up to a bunch of texts or Marco Polos or whatever they are, but they know that I'll answer them in the morning. Got it. Yeah. Got it. I mean, we're very clear about what emergencies are and that emergencies need to be handled by local providers. <laughs> right. Right. So where are most of your clients? They're really scattered around the country. That's the benefit of all of us being virtual now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
But I will say uh, in, in your, your dream of looking more like a European country, I have a client recently in Minnesota who did get two home visits over the first two weeks. And she just, she's got, she got such great care. Her baby got a little bit of jaundice. They brought the Billy blanket to her house. And then they picked it up when she was done with it. And I was like, what planet are you on? (laughs) Yeah, how did that happen? I know. So the first two weeks of her care, I kind of pulled back a little bit and stepped in a little bit more after she got that care. Um, So every so often I do see something in a local community and I can't claim to be clear on what systems were in place that allowed that to happen and why it's not happening elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But that's not the norm. Yeah, yeah. Well, what else do you want listeners to know about you or your business or? Yeah, um, I have a project coming down the pike. It's not available yet, but it will be within the next couple months. So I'd love people to start to know about it. I am going to release a course um, where the majority of the content that I find myself saying to individuals regularly um, will be in a, a very affordable course. So that people who can't afford the service, because I recognize that I'm offering a service to people who are privileged enough to be able to afford it. And that mm-hmm. that bothers me. <laughs> so I'm going to offer this course so at least the educational content is out there um, at a minimum. And I'm going to make it very accessible. Um, so that is coming down the pike. So people should follow me on Instagram at mother.wit. Dot maternity or check out my website at motherwitmaternity.com. And as I get a little bit closer to that launch, I will absolutely be spreading the word about that. And along with that course, what I think that does is allows people to pay for, for the course at a low price point. And when they hear something in the course that feels like they need personal attention, then they can schedule a one-off session with me focused on that rather than the preventative thread, which I love, and I hope some people will continue to do. But again, it's about access to this information. Yeah, yeah. All right. So let's make sure that our listeners have the website information again. Motherwit.com? Motherwitmaternity.com. And on Instagram, it's mother.wit.maternity. Got it, got it. All right. Well, are you ready for some rapid fire roundup questions? I guess so. (laughs) What role does feminism play in your life? A really big role, um, mostly because my daughter might be the biggest feminist I've ever met. And she's teaching me lots. Um, I thought I was a feminist until I met my daughter. (laughs) Yeah, our daughters will teach us everything. (laughs) Yeah, good, good answer. All right. How do you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Nobody ever told me. That becoming a mother would send me on a life journey like this one. Isn't it something? Isn't <laughs> it something? It's amazing how many women get into the birth world or the birth industry um, it's triggered by having their baby. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, I went to a second degree nursing program with the mm-hmm. intention of becoming a midwife. And so many people in my program were becoming nurses, some also planning to become midwives, but everyone was a second degree. And I was like, oh, right. Nobody who's 17 years old says like, I want to be a nurse. I mean, not nobody, but like 
it, it's something that comes with some amount of life experiences or, or, or a profound life experience. So interesting. Yeah. I had my profound life experience when I was 12 years old and I was at my first home birth. Ooh. And um, yeah, saw that baby born and then realized, yeah, okay, that's my calling. That's what I do. I work in that industry. Wow. That's so, so cool. Yeah. Little by little, since I was a 12 year old, I worked my way into it and then was a labor and delivery nurse for a huge chunk of time. Yeah. All right. Your last question then, where do you stand in the world of motherhood? I stand on a soapbox every day in support of mothers. Nice. Well said. Well, Tanya, it was really nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. It was so so nice talking to you too. Yeah. Well, we will talk again down the road and all the best on your new program. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. That's it for this week, folks. You can learn more about Tanya Trangali at motherwitmaternity.com. Learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com. Email me, jean at jeanfaulkner.com. I'm on Twitter at jeanfaulkner, and yes, I'll spell my name. That's J-E-A-N-N-E-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R.com. You'll find us on Instagram and Facebook at Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics. Do me a favor, go pick up a copy of my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, wherever get your books, will ya? Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics is produced by Recluse Records. Let's talk again soon. Bye-bye.